0: to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. glory to his name amen all right exodus chapter 3 now how many of you are familiar with these stories of moses coming into egypt all these stories the plagues with a moving out the exodus into the wilderness how many you're familiar with those yeah okay good so I think all of us are probably pretty familiar with these stories, whether we've grown up in, in church or maybe we haven't. We probably heard something about these stories. And and I was I was talking to Tyler last night, and and I think we've we've grown up hearing these stories. Um, but it is possible, it is possible and dangerous to be too familiar with stories. So familiar with stories that we miss out on what God is doing, and truly we miss out on who God is. And so Today that's what we don't want to happen and so we' many of us if we've grown up in church we are familiar with God and that familiarity can be dangerous. It can lead to things like indifference in our lives, apathy in our lives and this dangerous form of lostness. Do you, do you remember you remember who who was it? what town rejected Jesus? Nazareth? Where was Jesus born and raised? Nazareth. Sometimes we can be so familiar with the person of God that unintentionally we never come into a saving faith with Him because we grew up as neighbors with Him. And so today, there's there's this great familiarity to these stories, but let's be careful in our familiarity Or we might become like those in Nazareth where we condemn ourselves because we think we know Him. But we're not actually worshipping the God of the Bible. We're actually worshipping a a creation of our own image or our own imagination rather than us being created in His. So my my hope and goal today is to open up God's Word in such a way that we kind of receive a, a fresh vision. Not a new vision, not something you've never seen or heard before, but a fresh vision of a holy God where we... We fall more in love with Him. We see Him more clearly and we are more ready to give up our lives for Him and for His purposes. Uh, We we talked about a quote last week. I think I have it on the screen up here, but A.W. Tozer gave it and he says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base As the worshipper entertains high or low thoughts of God. And so today, we want to have high thoughts of a holy God. Last week, we looked at who is God. God is holy. Holy means that He is completely set apart from all the rest. He is completely different. Holy means He is perfect in character and in nature. He has no flaws, no blemishes, unlike you and me. He is completely other than. He is alien to humanity. He is out of this world good. That's what it means that it is, he is a holy God. And his holiness, we looked at last week, causes a problem for mankind that we can't solve. Because a holy God and sinful mankind cannot coexist in relationship. And our sinfulness creates a problem, a separation And just as we sang, that separation is far, it is wide, and we can't bridge it. And so God had to do something that we couldn't do. And we talked about how in Exodus that there was this holy ground. How did the ground become holy? Because holy God transferred holiness from himself into the ground around the bush. And we need the same thing to happen in our life. That mountain wasn't holy as it was. It was holy because God fell there. And we need the same transferal of God's holiness into our lives. And that's what the cross does. The cross transfers our debt of sin into His account and His credit of holiness into our account. And it's there that we receive this holy standing that can't be undone by which we are called saints of God. Now you say, well, I don't feel like a saint. Well, if you're in Christ, you are a saint. When am I a saint? On your good days, you're a saint. And on your bad days, you're a saint. Why? Because your sainthood isn't dependent on your own personal holiness. Your sainthood is dependent on what Christ has done for you. Isn't that good news? So if you did it all right last week, praise God for that. But don't rest your salvation on getting it all right last week. If you did it all wrong last week, don't fret in that. Because there's salvation available for you and me. So last week was holiness. That God is holy. And today what I want you to see is that God is intimately near and infinitely powerful. God is intimately near and infinitely powerful. Okay? Say that with me. He is intimately near and infinitely powerful. And I want you to understand that oftentimes those two things don't go together, do they? Normally, when somebody is near and compassionate and kind, and they have this empathetic, sympathetic personality to them, they don't often have the power to go along that we need to solve the problem. Or when somebody in our world has lots of power, what are they lacking? Nearness, compassion, empathy, sympathy, those kind of things that are good. And so, but it's in God and in his son Jesus that we see the nearness of God and the power of God colliding. How near is he nearer than you could ever imagine? How powerful is He? Far more powerful than we could ever dream or need. And we see Him today in this passage. Verse 7 says, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of My people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Now, can we just glory in that? Those three phrases for a second? That God knows or sees. God sees your affliction. He um. heard your cry he knows your sufferings can you just sit back and say you have a god if you're a christian the god of the bible if you are a follower of jesus your god knows sees and hears all that you're going through He is completely and utterly aware of everything going on in your life. Are you having a bad day? Have you had a bad season? Have you experienced difficulty or trial or tribulation? God sees, hears, and knows. I just, I'm so thankful. I'm overwhelmed with thankfulness at those three simple facts. That he sees hears and he knows every intimate detail about me. Verse 9 says, And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Again, I've heard their cry. I've seen their oppression. And here we're given this look into God's divine compassion. So God is uh, think about this. Think about it. take Back up. We're zoomed in really tight to the Mount of God, Mount Sinai. We're zoomed in really tight, but we need to zoom out for a second. And we need to take a look at maybe 400 years ago how God, in his sovereign plan, allowed Joseph to be sold into slavery. And in slavery, he goes to Potiphar's house, and he is accused of something he didn't do. And there, through all of that mess, he goes to prison. And it would be easy for any of us to say, God, have you forgotten me? Have you ignored me? Can you hear me? And of course he can. Don't you care? Remember the disciples on the boat in the storm? Jesus, wake up, we're going to die. Don't you care that we're going to perish here? Of course he did. And in that story, we see who's in the boat, right? God in the flesh is in the boat with him. And Jesus, God, God was with Joseph in the prison. How do we see that? We see that because through some miraculous event, dreams uh, of the the baker and the cupbearer are translated and interpreted and these one gets set free one dies and then that one who is set free eventually after years remembers there's this guy in jail and he can translate pharaoh's dreams and God leads his people through time, into Egypt where eventually they are enslaved and they grow into millions of people and the millions of people are crying out to some God, are you there? Can you hear me? And the answer is of course I can. I've seen. I've heard. I know. I just want you to know there's nothing that you'll ever go through in your life where God's ear will not be attentive to your cry as a child of God, where God will ever take his watchful eye off of you. You will never go through anything as a Christian that you have to go through alone. Isn't that good news? So many, many people in our world kind of view God like a child playing with a top. Um, where he, he winds up the top, he spins the, 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 the string around the top, and then he sets the top on the ground, and he pulls that string, and what's the top do? just starts going, it spins, and then what's the child do? He steps back to watch it spin, right? And if, you're, uh, if you're there are two or more of you, you're having top wars. And, and many people view God like that, that he winds this top up, the world up, and then he pulls the string, and he lets it spin, and then he steps back and sees what happens. But that is not the God revealed to us in the Bible. The God revealed to us in the Bible is not this this deist, this this God who is distant and far, but the God of the Bible is intimately near to His people. Yahweh is a God who sees, hears, hears, and knows. Genesis 16, He is El Roy, the God who sees. And Yahweh stands in stark contrast to all the gods of Egypt. And the gods... The other false gods revealed to us in scripture. I just want to bring up a couple um, examples of what I'm talking about. Do you remember the story in 1 Kings where Elijah goes to Mount Carmel and at Mount Carmel there are all the prophets of Baal and there's like this showdown on Mount Carmel between Yahweh, the one true God, and the prophets of Baal. Do you remember Here's what it says in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 26, 7, and 9. It says, And they took the bull that was given them, they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until evening, saying, Oh Baal, answer us. Look at what it says. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. Well, that's not very Christian of you, Elijah, right? He mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for He is a God... Very sarcastic there. I love this. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and you gotta wake him up. I mean, outright mocking the gods of Baal. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Another example is in Isaiah chapter 46, when God is condemning the people of Israel for their idolatry. This is what he says, To whom will you liken me, and make my equal, and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh it out, weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god and then they fall down in worship, they lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. And in Isaiah chapter 46, God says, I'm the one who has borne you up. I'm the one who has carried you, and I hear you, and I will save you. In other words, what we see is that we serve a God. The God of the Bible is intimately near. Yahweh is holy, and there is no one like Him. The Book of Exodus spends the first seventeen chapters really making that point: that Yahweh stands alone, that He sees, hears, and knows the cries of His people, and Yahweh alone saves. Let me, let me help you. All right, turn to verse or chapter eight, chapter eight, verse nineteen. All right, the third plague in Egypt. This is not on the screen, so if you're trusting the screen, you're in big trouble right now. Grab your Bible and turn in your Bible. It's that paper thing that has pages. If you didn't bring one, there's a black one in the pew rag in front of you. If you don't own one, please take that. That's our gift to you. In chapter 8, verse 19, the third plague is the plague of gnats. And this is the first plague that the magicians of Egypt can't mimic. They can't mimic it. And this is what they say in Verse 19 the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Where is the finger of God? Right there in Egypt. Right there in the middle of slavery. Right there in the middle of his people's problems is the finger of God working among them. And then in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12 and in, in, in following, Exodus 12, verse 12 says, for I, this is God saying, Yahweh saying, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night on the Passover, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. In other words, there's no God like me. All the gods of Egypt I'm going to prove through my plagues that I will execute judgment on each one of them. The plagues were actually, interestingly, a judgment on many of the prominent gods of Egypt, each one representing an Egyptian god. And he says, I stand alone. I am the God who sees, knows, and hears, and I'm the only God who will respond and act on behalf of my people. I will save my people Israel. Chapter 13, verse 21 to 22, you don't have to turn there, but there's the pillar of cloud comes into existence for the first time. Pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, and it says this in verse 22, that the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire did not depart from his people. When? Ever. How long? Forty years. It never departed. Never departed. This is our God. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God that we worship, and there is none like Him. And we see this in the incarnation. So God, in Exodus, comes down to deliver them. So we see divine compassion and a divine incarnation. He says, I'll come down and I will show the finger of God among the people of Egypt to save my folks. Have you read the Psalms? Over and over it says that God rescued the people of Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And that's exactly what He's showing. And this is the incarnation. We see it in Jesus. Incarnation, two words. Incarnate, which means In flesh and we see this in Jesus that our God we see it in Jesus is intimately near so he so near that he took on flesh and blood and came to dwell among us the god of the bible is entirely different what other what what other god what other god hears and answers what other god sees what other god comes to us answer none but our God is Emmanuel, God with us. The problem comes is that we wonder from the nearness of God. Now, this is kind of one of those things that blows my mind. Can you wonder from someone who is omnipresent? No, not really. You, you can't wander like a sheep uh, wandering and get away from the shepherd and him go, I have no idea where they are. You can't do that with our God. But what we can do is that I can lose the sense of God's nearness to me. Have you ever done that? I can do that as I stray from His commandments or from His truth. I can do that as I stray from community. I can walk away from those things which God has ordained for my good. And then I can lose the sense of His nearness, but I can never walk away from His omnipresence. I can walk away from the sense of it, the feeling of it, but I can never walk away from the reality that God is with me and near to me intimately. When I rebel against Him in sin, when I turn my back on His goodness, that's when God's nearness seems to fade. And this is why Jesus comes. I want you to read Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 12 and 13 with me. Look at the screen. It says, remember that at that time, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth, and strangers to the covenant of His promise. In other words, you had walked away from this sense of God's nearness. Can you escape from God? No, David says it in Psalm 139, Where shall I go from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I ascend to the depths of Sheol, you're there. Darkness is as light to you. There's nowhere that I can run to outrun you. But we can walk away from His nearness, the sense of His nearness, not the reality of it. And then it goes on to say, Having no hope, Without God in the world, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we were, we were separated, alienated, and strangers to God. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near to the blood of Christ. In Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near. In Christ Sin has separated us from God, but Christ came to bridge the gap for us and to bring us back to Him. In Christ. Not in works. Not in obedience. Not in church attendance. Or membership attendance. Or membership at a church. Not in baptism. None of those things. Not in Christian community. Are we brought near? In Christ Jesus, we who were once far off have been brought near. In Christ Jesus. So the question is, are you in Christ Jesus. Not do you know about Jesus? Not have you heard about Jesus? Not even do you believe in Jesus? But are you found in Christ Jesus? Because if you're not in Christ, you're separated. How is it in Christ that we're not separated or alienated? How is it that we're not strangers any longer? In Christ, we are brought in because Jesus was cast out. We are not forsaken because Jesus was forsaken. You've you've heard me say this before. What what were some of Jesus' last words on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would Jesus, God in the flesh, say that his father had forsaken him? No good father would forsake his son. Yet, Jesus cries out, God, you've forsaken me, why? It's because in that moment he did. How? Because on Jesus was placed all of the punishment for the sins of humanity. All the sin debt that we accrued, He took into His own personal account. He became a a cosigner on your debt. He bore the weight of our penalty for sin, our separation, our alienation. He bore that on the cross, and because Jesus did that, we are never ever forsaken. That's why Jesus or God says in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 6, I believe it is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How? Because Jesus was left and forsaken. We don't have to be. And so now in Christ Jesus, in Christ we are forever in God's presence. In Exodus, God comes among His people. Then, we'll see later on, they build a tabernacle and God fills the tabernacle with His presence. He dwells in it and fills the tabernacle, the temple, with His glory. And in the New Testament, God comes in the flesh and He dwells among His people, dies separated from God in order that He might come and dwell in a new tent, a new tabernacle, us. That he might fill a new temple with his glory. That he comes and he lives here. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God came upon a person and then left the person. He came upon for a task and then he was taken off. Much like you would put on a jacket to go outside, take off a jacket when you come inside. You wear it for a purpose and it's removed from you. But in the New Testament, that's not so. In the New Testament, Jesus, in the Holy Spirit, the fullness of Christ comes to dwell in you Forever. how amazing is the god of the bible that that god sees you he knows your sufferings he hears your cries whether they're verbal or silent whether they're just groans that god sees you hears you and knows your suffering He is completely aware of any injustice that you're facing right now. And our God alone has the power to save. And that's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is not that God will protect you from difficulty. That's not biblical. Have you you ever heard somebody say, well, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will? Have you ever read the Bible? It was those people that were in the most dangerous situations. The beauty of the gospel is not that God shields you like a helicopter parent. Oh, don't touch that. Oh, don't touch that. Come over here, little little sheep. No, that's not what he does. The beauty of the gospel is that God's with you in the middle of your trial. So can I just stop asking, God, why are you letting stuff like this happen to me? Why? I just don't understand. Can I just... Can I just encourage you that sometimes we ask that question so much that we miss out on the God who's with us in the middle of these bad things that are happening to us? We're so focused on the answer to our question that we miss Him. God does not hold with, withhold difficulty and trial from us, but the beauty of the gospel is that in Jesus, God walks with us in our trials, Always intimately near and fully knowing, and if you continue to focus on the answer to that question, you'll miss God in the middle of your trial. And here's, I, as I was thinking about this and meditating on this this week, here's uh, some ways that 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 God's intimate nearness affects our life. Okay, I'm not gonna spend much time on them, but when God, when the sense of God's nearness, when we feel it, when we sense Him, when we know that He is near, when we are walking with Him in intimacy, here's what happens. Number one, sin loses its appeal. Sin loses its appeal. When I when I have access to the King of glory, there's nothing that the world can offer me that's going to get me to put down the access to the King of glory. When I have the true treasure in my hands, there's no counterfeit joy or counterfeit peace or counterfeit hope that someone can offer me when I have what is real and true right there before me. Sin loses its appeal when I'm walking with Him in this intimate nearness when I'm living with Him. Second, temptation loses its power. When are are we tempted most to sin? Is it when we're walking nearest to Him? Or is it when we're kind of straying away? Is it when we're all by ourselves? Is it when we're in the darkness? Is it when we're all alone late in the evenings? Is it, is it those times when we're tempted to sin, where we're laying on our bed with the thoughts running in our mind, the thoughts of why? Is it in those moments where, where sin gets the upper hand? Temptation loses his power in his presence. Nearness nearness breaks that temptation's power. Nearness also equals likeness. And so when we're near him, guess what? Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into his likeness. Nearness is likeness. You be with him, and the effect of your, his nearness in your life will be a transforming work in your life where well, you will radiate the glory of God, the God that is in your presence. Our protection, and I don't mean safety, but our protection will come in proximity to the shepherd. What's Jesus say in John chapter 10? He says, The, uh, the shepherd, the good shepherd, is not a hired hand. The hired hand, when he sees the wolf, what does he do? He runs away, but not the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. Our our spiritual protection comes when we're in close proximity to the shepherd. So we need to know that voice and follow it. And God's nearness, this nearness, this sense of nearness is accomplished by Jesus and it's kept by repentance. That sounds weird for this grace alone pastor to say. Because you guys know that I believe we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone. No merit of your own works do not help your salvation. But here's what I want to say is that it's accomplished by Jesus and it's kept moving by our repentance. I heard one pastor say, what is the mark of godliness? How do you know that you're growing in godliness? And he says... It's the the stopgap in between sin and repentance. What's the time period between when you sin and you repent? That's the the fruit of godliness. How long does it take when when you sin against God, when you rebel against Him, when you ignore His words or reject His truth? How long does it take you from the time you sin to the time you repent? That is your godliness. Repentance is not this thing that we do. Hey, I repented that one time when I walked down the aisle and I trusted Jesus. I repented when I got in the waters of the baptismal pool. I repented then. No, friend, repentance is a, an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our life as He convicts us, we repent. We live in a constant state of repentance. John the Baptist and Jesus both said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's not a thing that you did. It's a thing that we live in. We're all going to sin. But are we led to repent? Repent! He is intimately near and in infinitely powerful. i got to hurry. Verse 8. Exodus chapter 3, verse 8 says, And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He says, I have come down to deliver them. That God takes on some form and comes down from heaven to earth to deliver His people from slavery, as the psalmist says, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Now, the plagues are just an evidence of God's holiness and His nearness, right? His holiness, that there's no God like Him, that He is near, that He's come to us, but it's also a sign of His power, His infinite power. And it's being revealed here in this book, namely to his own people. God is revealing himself to Israel. He's proving himself to Israel that I am a God worthy of your worship and there's none like me. And there are ten ten plagues to prove that there's no God like Yahweh. The parting of the sea proves that there's no obstacle greater than Yahweh, that he makes a way when there is no way. The manna and the quail and the water from the rock, there's no need so desperate that Yahweh can't meet your need there's is, God is infinitely powerful and intimately near he knows hears and sees and he alone has the resources at hand to meet your need isn't that good news I love Exodus chapter 14, verse 13. If you want to flip there with me. At the end of the ten plagues, at the end of the Passover, the people are coming out and they come to the edge of the Red Sea. And in chapter 14, verse 13, it says this. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. God fights battles on behalf of His people. And He is mighty. He is, in fact, as the Bible reveals Him, a man of war. There is no one who can outdo God in battle. Exodus chapter 17, you remember the story of of. Uh, Joshua and the army are in the valley and Moses, Aaron and Hur are up on the mountain and when Moses' hands are raised up the army is, uh, uh, is defeating um, the Amalekites but when Moses' hands fall, what happens? Israel starts losing. That's a lot of pressure for one man. So Aaron and Hur come alongside Moses. They sit him down on the rock. Lots of parallel for me in there. They sit him down on the rock and they hold His arms up, and God wins an overwhelming victory on their behalf. I just want you to see in the book of Exodus that God is intimately near and infinitely powerful, and we believe that God has not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's proving Himself, and there's nothing that he, He can't do. In fact, Jesus says all things are possible with God. There's no distance that He will not travel to rescue His covenant people. And we see in this, this next set of passages from all the way up to verse seven, or chapter 17 that God will move the resources of heaven and earth to the rescue and redemption of His people. This just hit me like a ton of bricks. Romans chapter 8. It's not on the screen because it just came to me. Romans chapter 8 verse 31 says, "What What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us, how will He not also with Him graciously give us All things. God moved heaven and earth to send Jesus into the world to redeem the world. And if God gave up His Son on your behalf, what resource is God going to withhold from you? He is intimately near and infinitely powerful. Is that the God that you serve? Or do you serve a God who sits out there and He doesn't really have anything to do with your regular daily life? problem is that many inside the church, listen to me, lean in here, many of us inside the church live like practical atheists. We Sure, I believe in God, but He's out there and I'm here just doing my thing. We believe in Him with the word of our mouth. We honor Him, but our hearts are far from Him. We live like God has no authority or dominion in our lives. There is no lordship of Christ in my heart, yet I say I believe in him. But you can't believe in the God of the Bible and let him have no sway in your heart or life. Let me wrap this up. I've, I've found, as I've been studying and thinking through this passage, I've found just some beautiful correlation. Uh, maybe I'm over-spiritualizing, maybe I'm not. But, but in the book of Exodus, there was a period between Genesis chapter 50 and Exodus chapter 1 of 400 years. In those 400 years, it was a time of slavery and darkness and silence. Have you ever thought about that? What happened? What was God doing in 400 years. The Bible is kind of silent on that, isn't it? And then God enters in to Egypt with divine compassion, divine incarnation and infinite power at hand in order to rescue those who cannot rescue themselves. When Jesus came, there was a period of about 400 years of silence. Theologians will call it the intertestamental period where the Bible is kind of silent. It was a time of rebellion and darkness in captivity. And there was no word of God. And then Jesus entered. And in Jesus we see divine compassion. We see divine incarnation. And in this God-man we see infinite power dwelling in a person. For there was nothing that God in Jesus... Could not do. And Jesus, in some of his first teaching in the book of Matthew, led us to the same truth. When he taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, I believe it is, Our Father in heaven. What's he saying? He's intimately near and he's infinitely powerful. Our Father in heaven. This is what God was teaching us through Jesus' prayer. The model prayer. Our Father in heaven. What's he saying? You're intimately near. There's no one closer to me than my own Father. And you're infinitely powerful. You're not a father of this world, but rather you're the father of heaven and earth. Hallowed be your name. You alone are holy. What do, we, what do we hear last week? That God is holy. He's intimately near, infinitely powerful. And the, this has two things to do with every one of us. If, if you don't know Jesus today, if you've never given your life to Jesus, you're missing out on what it means to experience true and abundant life. You, are, you have given in to counterfeits when Jesus offers you something true and eternal, you're trading it for temporary trappings. Oh, give your heart to Jesus today. Surrender to His Lordship. Worship the God of the Bible and Jesus the Redeemer, and you will find life like never before. Stop living like an atheist who says they believe in some kind of God. Oh, and give yourself to the true God of the Bible. Christian. I've never, maybe it's just where we are in life, but it seems like around us in the world that we live in, there's a lot of pain. A lot of heartbreak, a lot of brokenness. And I don't, maybe it's because of social media or immediate news But the brokenness of the world is on full display for us to see. In my own life, I I got a father that's ailing. I got a grandmother that's near death. You you guys know our story. Our family has experienced some hard things this spring, and it just seems like difficulty is closer than ever a Christian, I just want to remind you that God is with you. He's intimately near and infinitely powerful and if that's where you are, if your life is filled with trial, take heart, my friend. Let these truths strengthen you and undergird you because you are not alone. He sees and he hears and he knows. And he's able to deliver Maybe not in this world, but one day he will. Would you stand with me? Miss Margaret's going to pray. Play. You want to pray too? She's going to play. And and if if you'd like to respond in some way, you can do that now. Maybe it's just a simple, God, thank you for hearing me, knowing me, seeing me, and never leaving me. And if you're not a Christian, you're, you're truly walking through this world alone, separated, alienated. You don't have to be. So come to Jesus today. Father, I pray for those in this room who know they're lost, that today would be the day of salvation. For those who don't know they're lost, that today would be a day of revelation where they'd see that and they'd experience your conviction and they'd be transformed by the saving power of Jesus. Father, we love you. Pray these things in Christ's name. Come and encourage us. Amen. Let's sing together.